Scott has very kindly said that I only need to read to verse 30. So it's 2 Samuel chapter 15, and you can find that in page one, sorry, 315 of your Bibles in the pews in front of you. Absalom's conspiracy. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gathered strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Israel, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with the Kerathites and Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back, go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I am going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives, and as the Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were there with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do whatever seems good to him. 
The king also said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimaaz with you, and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from, me to infor- from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. All right, thank you so much, Sarah. Excellent, excellent job with some difficult names. I hope you keep your Bibles open there at 2 Samuel chapter 15. That will be um, really fruitful for all of us. Uh, And as Jamie's already prayed for us, we're going to begin. And uh, growing up, I should say, uh, my dad always, always bought Fords. I mean, now he's got a second-hand Jag, but uh, like growing up, we always had Fords. He just loved them. Big, muscular cars. The car that I learned to, dro- to drive in, it was a, a battleship. Seriously, it's a giant thing. And I remember one Sunday night coming home from church with my brother through St. Ives, the land of many, many traffic lights. And we were in good spirits. We were humming along the main road, listening to Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, I think it was. Probably a bit too loud, and I accelerated through one of the sets of traffic lights in St. Ives, and the pedal stuck. And I tried wedging it out with my foot, and I tried pumping it to release the accelerator, but it was stuck, and we were away. Now, I hadn't said anything to my brother uh, at this point, but about a half mile down the road, he uh, turns and looks at me as we're bolting along and says, Mate, you're going a bit fast. Things are pretty understated in our family. Actually, by that stage, we were rocketing. And an eyewitness uh, said to us that sparks were flying out of the exhaust. And I was just trying to think of what to do and hoping we'd get all greens. What would I do? I thought if I stuck it in neutral, we'd slow down, but it would rev so much it might blow the top off the engine. So after navigating through another set of green traffic lights, we hit a flat, a flat straight section. And I pulled into the outside lane and I turned the engine off and we rolled to a stop. We weren't that far away from home, so my brother ran home and he got my dad. Now let me say, there is only one question you should ever ask someone in my kind of situation. Just one permissible question. And that question is, are you okay? Now if and only if you get a completely positive response to that question, can you ask a follow-up question? My goodness, what happened? When my dad arrived, his first question was, is the car all right? (laughs) He did always love them Fords, my dad. But it's actually an inadmissible first question. It's just not right, and I really shouldn't paint my dad as a villain. He was an excellent dad. I found out some time later on that uh, when my dad was young, his father had kicked his little brother out of the family house just for moving one of their cars from the street into the driveway when he was only 17 years old. Interesting, isn't it, how the sins of the father are visited upon the sons and then repeated by them. Now, my oldest boy is about to start driving. Let me say, if he scratches the car, he's going to get it. (laughs) Just kidding, of course. Although we'll see how I go. Uh, In 2 Samuel today, we're going to see actually just that thing, how the sins of the father David were repeated by his sons. In fact, we saw that last week as well. 
Uh, you might remember the first half of this kind of awkward, unfashionable book of the Old Testament charts the wonderful rise of King David, Israel's greatest king, and we are supposed to admire him. He secured victory militarily, he brought peace to the land, he extended the borders, uh, he ruled with justice and with grace, he showed generosity to all the people, he even had the crippled grandson of his former enemy eat at his table every day. He demonstrated humility underneath God by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and he received the promise of an everlasting kingdom from God. But then he saw Bathsheba and he took her, though she was married to another man and he had that man killed and then everything went to pot. I mean, spectacularly, tragically and often as his own sons mimic the failures of their father, the king. Last week we saw Amnon, the, the oldest son, assault his half-sister Tamar, repeating David's sexual violation of Bathsheba. Today we see Absalom, his oldest remaining son, try to seize the kingdom with the same kind of deceit and violence with which David had Bathsheba's husband killed. The sins of the father are repeated by the sons with tragic effect. And friends, this story will impress upon us all how our own folly can unravel and unfurl way more than we might at first think. And yet it also shows us where hope lies in such scenarios, so it's well worth tuning in. But in the first instance, we're just going to follow the story to see how the sins of the sons reflect the sins of David and then just sort of unravel and unfurl. And the chief villain here isn't David. Uh, It's his son, Absalom. Absalom was, of course, a player in the previous episode, being the full brother to the dishonored Tamar. And he waited two years before craftily hatching a plan to kill Amnon, his own half-brother who had assaulted her. And then he fled into the desert as his father David the king mourned the loss of the elder Amnon, but once again did nothing else. But really we're introduced to Absalom in chapter 14, verse 25, just a page earlier. So read along with me, chapter 14, verse 25, where it tells us, In Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish on him. The text tells us he had such thick locks of hair, he had to get it cut because it weighed him down. I hate him already. (laughs) But as we open up to chapter 15, the pretty face masks a very clever and conniving mind. You see there in verse 1, after what is five years in the wilderness and lying low in Jerusalem, he bursts onto the scene with soldiers and chariots. Chariots may not have ever been seen in the streets of Jerusalem. They were typically the the equipment of the enemy. And he parades through the city. He was a king just like all the nations had. Wow, what an impression that must have left. And then from verse 2, he would position himself as someone willing to hear the complaints of the people. You know, at ground level, mucking in with ordinary folks, sympathizing with their troubles, feeding their discontent with the current administration, assuring them that he would rule quickly and in their favor. And no airs and graces about Absalom. Have a look at verse 5. Whenever someone bent down low to honor him as the king's remaining eldest son, he'd have none of that. A hearty handshake was all that was required. He was a, a real man of the people. 
an opposition leader extraordinaire like Mr. Foley and Mr. Shorten get some of this. He looks the goods, he sounds the goods. And so it's not surprising that verse 6 tells us that he really stole the hearts of the people of Israel. In verse 7, after yet another four years, I mean, he's nothing if not patient. The time was ready to enact the plan. And so with the king's blessing, verse 9, go in peace, said David. Tragically, the last words he would ever utter to his son, with the king's blessing and without the king's suspicion, he went to Hebron where David was anointed as king. And then with the, the sending out of spies, the securing of David's advisor Ahithophel, I think, Sarah, you got it right. <laughs> and the sounding of the trumpets, Absalom is declared king. The nation was ready for a coup. Verse 12, the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following gained numbers. Well, of course it did. He had all the worldly wiles, good looks, charm, grandeur, ground-level people-pleasing popularity and ruthlessness to boot. And David was a shadow of his former self and rule. He was weakened by his own failures and he played into the hands of his son, the heir to the throne. Of course, the conspiracy gained strength. And that it was really on is clear from David's immediate response in verse 14. Come, we must flee. Well, none of us will escape Absalom. And that's exactly what they do, flee for their lives in a, in a grim procession out of the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of David, with the bitter irony that Ittai, the Gittite, a recently arrived foreigner, shows David more loyalty than his own flesh and blood. I've never been west to Adelaide, but I imagine there's a point, maybe this point, where you look west across the Nullarbor and it just lays out forever before you, endlessly. And if you've never been west of Adelaide either, maybe, maybe think of it this way. You would have climbed a mountain or a hill perhaps and you think you're just about to get to the top and you kind of just peer over the crest and then you realise that it goes on further, much, much further. This story we're looking at today illustrates how the sins of the father are not just repeated by the sons, but actually how the sins of the father unravel and unfurl and roll out beyond him, seemingly forever, much, much further than he could have ever imagined that night on his palace roof in the spring when he saw a beautiful woman bathing. Now, David's not the villain in this story, and eventually he makes it back into the royal palace in Jerusalem. But by that stage, his two oldest sons are dead. Another son, born to Bathsheba, is dead. And at least one of his daughters and ten concubines have been assaulted and see out their days as desolate women. You can imagine if all the events from chapter 11 onwards had been kind of captured on video, it would make for very distressing viewing for David. You could imagine him squirming in his seat, writhing, wishing he could exchange everything he had just to rewind that tape, to make a different decision that spring evening, to undo all the damage. But it doesn't work that way. And the tape plays out. Friends, can I urge you to let the tape play out in your mind before you do that little thing? 
before you make that small decision that you know is wrong. Or maybe it's not even wrong, it's just unwise because it'll probably lead to something wrong. Uh, Maybe it's that um, seemingly innocent text or exchange with the person in the office you're getting along with. You know, you think, where's the harm in that? Or uh, maybe you know that you've got a problem with liquor, but you're stinging for a drink, and you think it's not a sin just to have one, is it? Even Jesus changed water into wine. Maybe you've got um, issues with gambling, but you fancy a small flutter on the ponies. Maybe there's a deal going down at work, and you can make a lot of money. Maybe there's a promotion on the table, but you know that it just doesn't smell right. Maybe you're having a disagreement with your spouse or with your parents or with a friend or with your children and you really want to be right. You want to win the argument rather than bring peace. And you know as the words leave your lips that they will inflict damage and hurt. That's their design because you cannot unsay things that you've already said. And so they come out with damaging effect. So you've got to count to five, don't you? Or maybe 50. Walk out of that room and just let that tape play out in your mind. Tell me, friend, how does it end? Does it in fact end? Was it worth it how it ended? How many people did you hurt? How grievously did you bring offence to the Almighty? Because the thing with sin is that it rarely affects just you. It almost always unravels and unfurls way further than you and for much longer than you'd imagined. And so I just say, let the tape play out in your mind first. You might even be here this morning and you sense yourself repeating the sins of your father or mother or family. And if that's the case, I really urge you to deal with that face on and with honesty because it does not need to be the screenplay of your life. And from this point on, you want to write your own script, as it were. We see David, and we see the sins of the father, repeated by his sons, and they unravel and they unfurl much further than he thought. Now the next thing we see from this story is how the the sins of the sons or one particular son, Absalom, brings suffering to David but that actually anticipates the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We've just seen that David's no innocent victim and really what I should have already said is that David's suffering from the heavenly perspective is is the judgment of God playing itself out in his life. Earlier in chapter 12, verses 9 to 11, through the prophet Nathan, God said this to David, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own? Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you, You might have done it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And so you've got both the villainy of Absalom, who is a villain, but you also have the judgment of God in operation. And yet there's a third layer. David's suffering 
anticipates Jesus' suffering, and both the similarities and the differences are very important. I'm sure you didn't miss the great pathos of that moment that David crossed over the Kidron Brook there in verse 23 and headed towards the wilderness with the whole countryside crying out as this procession out of the city almost feels like a procession out of the promised land itself. But I wonder if there were any resonances for you in this description in verse 30 as David wept aloud, walking up the Mount of Olives, barefoot, despairing, shamed, humiliated. The same despondent journey that Jesus made the night before his crucifixion, betrayed as he was by so many of his own flesh and blood. It was David's darkest day and it was sadly similar to the suffering of our Lord Jesus in his final hours, weeping up the Mount of Olives. Friends, don't you reckon that the differences between the two are even more remarkable than the similarities? Because the reason the two men took that journey 1,000 years apart could not be more different. David wept up the Mount of Olives because God was judging him for his own sins that had been visited upon and repeated by his sons. He suffered because of his own failures and his own inability to stop his sons repeating those failures. And it was God judging him for that sin, for that weakness, for that failure, and he deserved it. Jesus climbs up the Mount of Olives and climbed onto his cross the following day because God was judging him for our sins, not his own. He suffered because of our failures and our inability to stop repeating our failures. It was God's judgment upon Jesus for our sin, our weakness, our failure, and he did not deserve it. We did. But the good news of the Christian gospel is that there is hope for people like you and me and all our failings and our weaknesses who, like David, deserve to be judged by God. And that hope is found in the one who climbed Mount of Olives and then climbed onto the cross, though he did not deserve it, and who absorbed the judgment and wrath of God for our sins in our place, should we turn and trust in him, our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin, weakness, failure, we all have them. And all of us are living with that tape that's playing out because we have them. And perhaps even because of other people's tape that's playing out. People who might have wronged us. And we can't turn back time. And you can't rewind the tape and have another go. It doesn't work that way. But we can be forgiven our sin and our weakness and our failure. And we can be cleansed from the things that have been done unto us by the failures of others. And we can be restored into right standing with God. And we can have the hope of a better tomorrow and the prospect of a brilliant eternity, but only because there was someone other than David who wept on the Mount of Olives. Only because Jesus died for our sins on the cross in our place. And only if we turn and trust in him. Have you done that? And friends, will you do that if you haven't? The suffering of David, it's so highly resonant with the suffering of Jesus a thousand years later. But it is the differences that really stand out. Jesus did not suffer for his own sins. He was not judged by God for his own failings. He was judged by God for ours, that we might be forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. So we really ought to turn and trust in him.
Now, the last thing we see today is that the sins of the sons do not overcome the Lord's anointed. In other words, rebellion against God's anointed and appointed king never succeeds. I'm uh, not much of a user of social media. Uh, That's because I never do anything interesting in my life. I mean, I could take pictures of my cup of coffee, my breakfast, my burrito, but there's enough other posers who do that. I've got nothing to contribute. Uh, In my view, Facebook should be called Fakebook and uh, Snapchat should be called, I don't know, Satan Chat or Crap Chat or something. Now, having alienated half of you, um, just fessing up that I don't use it all that much, because uh, I prefer to, you know, live my life and things like that. But uh, very providentially, the other day I was on Twitter, me and Donald J, and I came across this tweet from a fellow pastor, and this is what he said. He said, read to your children the stories of the rebellion of Absalom against David, the one we're looking at, and the rebellion of Sheba against David in chapter 20, and the rebellion of Adonijah against David in 1 Kings. Then look him in the eye and say to him, Rebellion against the Lord's anointed never, never, never succeeds. Now, I reckon you read them stories to your kids are going to have nightmares, actually. (laughs) But it's true, you can't overcome the Lord's anointed. That is, his appointed king. Well, let's see how that story plays out here. By the end of our chapter, chapter 15, David and all those loyal to him have crossed over the Kidron Brook. They eventually do cross over the Jordan River in chapter 17 into exile and outside the promised land. But there is hope that two priests by the name of Zadok and Abiathar have remained in the city of Jerusalem with their two sons, Jonathan and Ahamas. It'll be very handy to have them there. Furthermore, if you read verse 37 in chapter 15, the last verse of the chapter, Hushai, David's friend, returned to the city of Jerusalem just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem to seize power. And through an intriguing series of events in the following chapters, these five fellows and a number of other brave men and women outwitted the wily Absalom. And as the two sides, the strong forces of Absalom, the depleted servants of David fought, Absalom was riding his mule underneath a terebinth tree and his great locks of hair got stuck in the branches and the mule went on, leaving him hanging there. Here's a picture of it here. And David's military commander grabbed three javelins and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was still hanging there. And it paved the way for David to return to Jerusalem as God's anointed and appointed king. You cannot overpower the Lord's anointed. Rebellion against him never, never, never succeeds. Now I reckon there would have been some there on the day that Jesus was executed who might have thought otherwise. Would have been some who thought we have taken his life, this so-called king. We have succeeded What a shock on that third day when Jesus walked out of the tomb, leaving it empty. When by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus not only secured victory over his Jewish accusers or his Roman executors, but over the twin forces of sin and death as well. God's anointed king does not stay down. 
Even the forces of sin and death did not overwhelm Jesus. So rebellion against the Lord's anointed never succeeds. The answer, therefore, for us all is to rather join him than oppose him. And if you haven't yet done that to secure forgiveness of sins, cleansing from all unrighteousness, why not do that? Why not do that today? Why not turn from opposition, your opposition, whether it's willful and rebellious or just ignorant and indifferent? Turn and trust in him to secure forgiveness and hope in a brilliant future. And for those of us who have turned to Jesus, that's many of us here today. It becomes of us to join him in obedience and in suffering. Do you remember what Ittai the Gittite says? Whether it means life or death, I'm here with you. Because there remain forces who are opposed and in rebellion to Jesus, both willfully and indifferently. And this naturally means that life for the Christian will not be a cakewalk all the time. And so to turn and trust in Jesus means to follow in his footsteps in both suffering and in obedience. Now friends, in 2 Samuel, we see the sins of the father visited upon the sons and then repeated by them. It does remind us to pause and to let that tape play out in our mind before we embark on folly and wrong of our own. But it also reminds us that if we are going to be delivered from our own sins and weaknesses and failures, we need a better king than David to represent us. We need a Lord's anointed who does not defeat political rival, one who conquers sin and death and does a great work within us. Well, we have such a one in the Lord Jesus who wept on the Mount of Olives, who died on the cross, who rose again from the grave, who calls us to turn to him and who bids us to follow him in obedience even in the midst of suffering. Will you do that? I'm going to pray that God might help us to all do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for King David. Thank you for this very sobering uh, reminder of how sin in our lives can so easily unravel and unfurl way more and much further than we first imagined. Pray that sobering thought might... um, Guard us from beginning uh, and making silly small decisions that just lead to so much pain. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he walked up the Mount of Olives, not because of his own sins and folly, but because of ours, to grant us forgiveness of sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, I pray for friends here who have not yet turned and trusted in him that you might move them to do just that. I pray for brothers and sisters who have turned and trusted in him that you would help us all to follow him in obedience with all our hearts, even in the midst of suffering, and to do this for his glory. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.